go. Hello and welcome to Filmwalk. This is Glenn. I'm here with Daniel. Hello. And tonight we are going to be reviewing a film that dropped on HBO Max a couple of weeks ago from director James Wan. It is an utterly grotesque horror film called Malignant. But first we will be checking out the brand new Broadway stage musical adaptation of Dear Evan Hansen. Have you been doing those letters to yourself with Dr. Sherman? I've been trying to. Have you ever felt like nobody was there? Um, no one signed your cast. Now we can both pretend we have friends. I'm sorry about my brother. Have you ever felt forgotten in the middle of nowhere? I wish everything was different. I wish I was part of something. I wish that anything I said mattered. Have you ever felt like you could disappear? Dear Evan Hansen. Yeah, yeah, that's mine. I'll, I'll, I'll just take it. Wait, I really, I need that back. Like you could fall and no one would hear. Connor took a letter from me and it was an assignment from my therapist. Still. Even when the dark comes crashing through. Connor's mother and stepfather are here to see you. When you need a friend to carry you. Connor wanted you to have this. And when you're broken on the ground. Dear Evan Hansen, he wrote it to you. His last words. Connor took his own life. He won. I'm sorry Connor didn't write this. No, 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 please. It's this. You will be found. And we didn't think Connor had any friends. I mean, you really gonna tell these people that the only thing they have left of their son is that letter that you wrote to yourself? So, you and Connor, tell us something, please. Right, um, I started talking and you couldn't stop. They didn't want me to stop. I'm putting together a memorial service. If you wanted to do something, That was from the trailer of Dear Evan Hansen, the film adapted from the 2015 stage musical of the same name and starring the same person, Ben Platt, who is now 27 years old. The film is adapted uh, for the screen by director Stephen Chbosky, and it stars, as I mentioned, Ben Platt, Amy Adams, Julianne Moore, Caitlin Deaver, Amanda Stenberg, and Nick Dodani, among others. So this film is an adaptation of a stage musical that uh, I, I basically gone through a similar path with other stage musicals, including other ones by Pasek and Paul, who did the music for this film, uh, and for the original stage musical, where I just kind of saw the so the keynote songs from the uh, musical being passed around through my musical theater friends, and they said, oh, hey, you gotta listen to this. And then eventually I checked out the original cast recording, and there are some some real bangers on the track to this musical. There's Waving Through the Window, that's the, uh, that's kind of, that, that is the one that I believe uh, was nominated for the Tony. Um, and, uh, there, there's also, uh, there's also Requiem, there's You Will Be Found, there are a lot of great songs, there are a lot of songs that are at least memorable, uh, in the stage musical, and those have obviously made it over to the film as well. The plot of this film, and of the, of the original musical, is, I don't think there's any way, other way to say it, it's deeply fucked up. Um, it involves a teenager who suffers from severe social anxiety, uh, Evan Hansen, who was played by Ben Platt, who initiated this role when he was in his early 20s, and Honestly, uh, I'm sure he looked fine on stage. I've seen what he looked like on stage. Uh, there, are, there is footage of him performing it on Broadway. Uh, they didn't give him this over-the-top, curly-haired kind of wig. But also, when you see a character performing on stage, they are when you, see, when you see an actor performing on stage, you're not seeing them close up. You're seeing them from like a minimum of 30 feet away. So you don't have to do things like pancake them with makeup to make them look younger. Instead, this movie not only took an actor who honestly had no business playing this character at this point in his life. Uh, you know, despite the fact that he clearly has a great deal of affection for this material and for this project that he spent so many years, you know, playing on Broadway, I get that. 
but he should have taken a cue from uh, from his uh, his senpai Lin Manuel Miranda when he brought in the heights to the screen this year. He did not play the uh, the lead role as he did when he when he initiated the role on Broadway in two thousand eight when he was much younger and of an age to play that role. Uh, he he just played the uh, the uh, I think it was the Agua Fresca seller in the neighborhood. Um, so you know he still put himself in there, but he put himself in there in an age appropriate role, and he cast somebody much younger to play the lead role because the lead character is much younger. Um, this film never really gets past that initial distraction. Now they surrounded twenty seven year old Ben Platt, who they somehow made look even older with their every attempt to age him down. Uh, they surrounded him with actors that are. You know, between 24 and 26 years of age, including some that we've that we've enjoyed in other things. Caitlin Deaver, we previously saw in Short Term 12, and she is fantastic. But you really never get past the fundamental problem here that this is a character who is doing things that are at best deeply ill-advised and at worst predatory and dangerous. We'll, we'll get into what he actually does here uh, very soon, but I think this movie is fatally broken from the outset because you never get past the image of this grown man going down the hallway in a high school, screaming at children, preparing to perpetrate atrocities upon them. So, Daniel, what did you think of this film? Wow, what, what ageism you spewed right there. Here is 42-year-old Ben Platt <laughs> playing a high schooler. I welcome it, okay? Have... 60-year-olds play high schoolers. I don't care. I think everyone deserves acting opportunities. Do you not agree with that? I think that... Clearly, clearly you just want a bunch of pretty young people with the MTV look to play your high schooler. Um, you, you are aware that I have, uh, on many occasions, defended Cloud Atlas, which was, at that time, my favorite movie of the year. So, suffice to say, I don't think I need to establish my bona fides of uh, being tolerant of, let's say, theatrical casting decisions. Representation matters, and old people need representation now more than ever. This is a movie that relies on us having sympathy for the naivete and recklessness of this character, and there is no way that a that such an old-looking actor is going to look anything but predatory pulling these things off. Glenn, he's taking a bunch of anti-aging pills that we see in the beginning of the film. He is doing his best to fit Indeed. So, Daniel, what'd you really think of this film? So, here's my actual thoughts. Uh, I knew nothing about the material going in. My wife said that it was about mental illness. She's very familiar with the the stage production. Uh, she's listened to the soundtrack. I haven't. I, I knew of it, right? Like I've heard the name Dear Evan Hansen, but I had no no knowledge outside that it was about mental health. So my first thought was, yes, Ben Pye is too old to play this character. Uh, but I was like, you know what? If I have to buy the bull crap that we'll talk about in Malignant, I can buy a Ben Platt in 17. Sure. Sure. Who cares? Uh, I thought that uh, Julianne Moore was critically underutilized. She plays Evan Hansen's mother Correct. in the film. Uh, I read up afterwards uh, that the actual uh, stage production is more focused on the relationship between parents and, ch- and, their, and their children as opposed to uh, the children and their relationships with each other. Uh, and I thought that was more interesting direction and there were songs that were clearly about you know parent child relationship that were cut from from the film that were in the stage play uh apparently were were quite popular so i was a little bit confused as to why the movie made those changes uh, outside of possibly wanting to make the relationship between evan and zoe uh, i guess something that you can hook on to but honestly i guess i didn't care 
I didn't care watching it. Uh, I was mostly interested whether, you know, uh, Evan was going to pull this uh, little bit of a uh, parasite uh, move off where he ingratiates himself to a rich family because we're supposed to root for that according to Parasite. A, a rich family that is grieving their, their recently deceased son who has taken his own Correct. Life. But, like, as we learned from Parasite, we have to root for those characters. So I was like, okay, we have to root for evil Evan Hansen, uh, you know, basically sucking the scholarship money from uh, from the Screaming family. So, okay, let's see if he can pull it off. I, I will grant that if Bong Joon-ho wanted to adapt this this material, I think that, that would produce a very entertaining film or maybe get Park Chan-wook in there. Like it, there, there are a lot of a lot of pioneers of the Korean revenge film genre that, or monster film genre that could do a lot of great work with this material. I I thought Amy Adams was great. She's she's always entertaining to watch. She she can really show sorrow well, like like written on her face. Yeah, she plays Cynthia Murphy, who is uh, who is the mother of Zoe and Colton, or rather, uh, Colton Colton Ryan plays Connor Murphy, who is the uh, the boy who commits suicide. Uh, and uh, Larry Mora is uh, he's played by Danny uh, was it Pino? I, I've seen that guy for years on uh, different TV shows. So I was like, oh, I know you. Which one was Larry Mora? Uh, he was um, he was um, uh, Connor's uh, father, stepfather. Oh, got it. Okay. Yeah, there was there was also uh, he has a friend at school. I'm putting an asterisk next to friend. I believe this was Jared Calwani, who was played yes. by Nick Dodani, mm-hmm. uh, played by an actor who is also who is the same age as Ben Platt. Um, and I have to say, watching these two, because unlike most of the people in this film, uh, the uh, the the friend or the friend of the family, Jared, is fully complicit in what in what uh, Evan Hansen is doing here, and. So let's go ahead and talk about what Evan Hansen actually does here, because we need to be very clear about what, because he does, he does sort of chance into this and he makes a bad choice and it just kind of escalates from there. So what begins as him doing an innocent therapeutic exercise of writing himself letters, dear Evan Hansen, he imagines a version of himself writing a letter about how he's feeling that day, about how that day is going to go as a means of just kind of exploring his own thoughts, exploring his own ways of thinking and think and imagining a version of himself that could have a better day than the one that he expects to have. Yeah. Written self affirmations. Yeah. A- as a therapeutic tool, that seems like, I-, I don't know if that's a normal practice within, within, uh, you know, f- with folks that are dealing with social anxiety or not, but it seems plausible enough to me. And it seems like a fairly harmless activity to be engaging in. He then accidentally exposes one of these letters, uh, which mentions the character of Zoe Murphy, uh, a girl that he's kind of into, um, to her brother, uh, Connor Murphy. And Connor is a bully and an asshole. And uh, Deeply the, troubled. The, the letter is pretty vague about about what his feelings are exactly about Zoe. He kind of basically just says, if only I could talk to her, I wish I could get to know her better. Um, and, and that vagueness of the letter is very important because the, because what ends up happening is Connor ends up taking the message, the message with the full intention of, you know, using it to humiliate Evan at some point in the future, but instead he takes his own life. And then his parents, the Murphys find this letter to Evan Hansen on their son's dead body. And they think that a, this is a suicide note and B Evan Hansen must've been his friend or must've been a, must've been a good friend to him. And with that initial, moment of mistaken identity and uh, mistaken understanding as well as, and I would agree, Amy Adams plays this beautifully, um, Cynthia, uh, Cynthia Murphy's desperation to see her son as something that he frankly doesn't seem like he really was. Somebody with a richer inner life, uh, somebody that was was on his way back from substance abuse problems and mental health problems. and yeah, Who had promise. Exactly. 
somebody that that the other members of the Murphy family, including Zoe, didn't really see him as because they because they seemed to be on the receiving end of his abuse more frequently. Now, we don't know what was going on with Connor. In fact, the you know, because because he dies so early in the film, we really only have the reactions of the people that were actually in his life to to gauge who he was and what was wrong with him. You know, he he, he may have had some serious mental health issues. And I'm not here to say that uh, that the the family members of this character who is who is uh, taken his own life, um, subsequently saying, "Look, I feel like we're better off without him," which is basically Zoe's perspective on the matter, because her brother threatened to kill her on multiple occasions, and you know was shoving her around. So I, I can understand her finding this letter allegedly written by her dead brother saying that he desperately wants to get to know her better and and wishes that she, wishes that uh, you know he could come to an understanding with her and and having that kind of fuck with her head a little bit that was one of the more interesting parts of the uh, of the, of the play of course i have not seen the stage musical i've just heard the the broadway cast recording so i've kind of got to infer it from the performance of requiem and other songs that let us into the inner life of zoe as a character but i feel like this is an area where now that I've seen an entire rendition of this story and I've seen as much of Zoe's inner life as we're allowed to to see in the film as as brought to life by by Caitlin Deaver an actress that I that I think t- did as well as she could have with this material I find this relationship to be a baffling choice as a focus for this film and and fairly lacking like I what I keep going back and forth on is how horrified we're supposed to be about what Evan Hansen is doing because and, and basically how much self-awareness the storytellers here have about what he's doing and I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. Like, how bad does it? How bad are we meant to think that he is right now, or how malicious are we meant to think that he is as he's doing? This things? is a rare moment for for the podcast, so I want you to document it. We are in agreement because I did not care about this relationship. I also thought that uh, Caitlin Deaver did a fine job with the role that she was given, but boy, there's no there's no breath in those lungs. <laughs> like, it's such a vapid relationship i did not care and uh i guess well, at, at best ill-advised right well, because i, I, understand I could why it was the focus like why why are we focused on this like i guess uh i guess you could argue that while well, it shows that evan hansen was overcoming his social anxiety and that he was you know becoming it you know coming into his own right he was finally you know living the life that he always wanted to but was you know handicapped and couldn't do so okay Fine, but like I want to see more than just like a high school romance. Well, and also as he's doing these things, he's doing it at the expense of of just lying to and gaslighting this family about their dead son and brother. Yeah, to answer your second part, I didn't think that he was doing it maliciously. You know, when Amy Adams tells you my son wrote this, you kind of have to say yes. But you also have to agree, like if you make that lie, you double down on that lie forever. Like, that is something you take to your grave and you try not to, you know, grow it, right? Like, when I make a lie, which I've I've done in the past, I try not to, but occasionally I do lie or mislead. uh, I document that in my brain and I say, this is is the context. I'm never allowed to expand on this because that will get me in trouble. Right. But, but whenever this very specific narrow window of, a, of context come up, this is my story. This is the narrative that I've spun. Problem with Evan Hansen is he keeps broadening it. And then he has the moment where he goes viral. And now it's out of his hands, right? Right. Now, 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 it's, now it's taking on a new life. I don't think that he's a bad person. I just think that he got wrapped up and overcome by something that he just... 
he had no possibility of controlling. But at that point, you have to come clean. There is a scene uh, in in the film, and it's it's actually a musical number, and it's the it's the very first meeting between Evan Hansen and the Murphy family, and Zoe is just barely involved in it because she doesn't want to hear about any of this at this point. Um, and Cynthia is just winding him up, talking about them going to the orchards together, and because he, he just made up a detail, we went and hung out around some trees. And and Cynthia starts feeding him details. She's like, oh, you, you went to the orchard with him? You know, we used to do that. And she's reminiscing about a, about a great family fun time and mm-hmm. maybe a better time for their family back in the day. And there is intense social pressure on Evan Hansen to, to, to confabulate something for her. And, and this is an instance of him not really experiencing an emotion of his own, but but sort of feeding back what he's being given, sort of mirroring in, an, in the absence of anything that he's able to produce himself, which I, I found very interesting. And the tone of the musical number that ensues, where uh, where Colton Ryan comes back as Connor Murphy, but like, unlike we saw him at any other point in the movie, like they're doing dance numbers together, they're having a happy, fun time as friends, because this is fictional Connor Murphy mm-hmm. uh, that we're seeing here. And it's almost got a chipper tone to it. I mean, they go to a fucking arcade and they play Dance Dance Revolution. And it's a, very it's well, an ala- by the way. an elaborate musical and dance number. And these two actors are probably having the most fun that we see them have in the entire movie. So now, in retrospect, that mu- that particular musical number feels tonally off from the rest of the uh, of the film. And I think I figured out why as it went along because it's almost fourth wall prodding with what a monstrous thing that he's doing here. I mean, every time we see the fictitious Connor Murphy grinning at the camera and smiling and winking and look at, look at how much fun we're having. Like this is not real. This is, this is Evan Hansen's completely made up version of this guy that he barely knew. How fucked up is that? And that seemed like the one moment of the movie almost demonstrating self-awareness of that, but it never expands on it from that point. Yeah. They they really want to portray Evan uh, in the best possible light. And they do so by showing what a good, you know, he, he's a good boyfriend, like he's he's a, he's a good surrogate son for uh, the, you know, the uh, Murphy family. But I was mostly interested in the relationship between Evan and his mother, Heidi. Yeah, to- totally agree. Every moment between those two characters. And I, I, it feels mean to say so, but Julianne Moore is of an appropriate age to play Ben Platt's mother. <laughs> So that works. Well, well, that aside, the, you know, she her character is really interesting in, in in the respect that, you know, she's doing all these sacrifices to try to pay for college for Evan, try to put you know food on the table, try to just keep things going, keep the lights on, and Evan really doesn't appreciate it, and he keeps throwing back in her face. And I understand there's a, there's a level of hurt there, but you're never here. Well, you don't know, like, you're never here, so you wouldn't know about this. And he, he doesn't include her on, on, on things in his life. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, that's the relationship I want to explore. Yeah, and it's kind of heartbreaking because they're almost drawing a parallel. We see him reach out to his uh, to his biological father at one point, and, who lives across the country and does, just has no interest in this other kid that he has. Because he's got his own new family and he's got other kids. And Yeah, he ignores every text message. Yeah, if, if he responds at all, it's one or two words, or you know, I can't talk right now. And and the idea that he would latch on to this surrogate family and becoming a surrogate son because he sees something lacking at home, both as a sympathetic trait for this character, it's it's tragic, but it's sympathetic, 
And also, uh, it makes his relationship with his own mother, who is clearly doing everything she can for him, that much more tragic. That is something where I think there could have been a sympathetic angle to this character, but it is fatally sabotaged by the fact that we are dealing with a grown man here. Well, he's not just a grown man. He's a grown man who can sing and dance. That's true. He's a triple threat. He is a triple threat. So I... I, I don't know how much more we need to get into the plot of this. The the whole Connor project and the sort of social media, like, let's go let's go viral, this video is giving me life, felt very much like the idea that this letter and this project would go viral. They're trying to, like, revive an orchard in the dude's memory. Like, I don't, I don't really understand how an orchard ends up being a monument, because an orchard requires a lot of work to maintain. Yeah, the, the $100,000, like, I was like, okay. It's a business. Is the it produces apples. Open for like a couple of weekends a year? Like $100,000 isn't going to stretch that far for an agricultural production. Yeah, like unless you're turning it into a working farm and like you're hiring pickers and, and, and growing a crop of apples every year. So it's very, it's a very strange narrative choice. And maybe that was the point that they were trying to make like subtle that this sort of internet activism doesn't actually do anything. They just needed a small business rehab loan from the farm bureau and they would have been okay. Yeah. I don't know. Like I thought uh, the character along uh, back who was the uh, primary driver behind the Connor initiative, someone who was struggling with mental health herself. Yeah. Played by Amanda Stenberg. Yes. And she, you know, she was a, a character that is, seems to, to have everything together. Type A you know, is in, involved in a lot of activities and clubs. Uh, but then she shows her vulnerability to, to Evan, and then he's able to reciprocate. And I like that they had a, a nice little moment there. But what I wanted to see was her really get pissed off, like more so than she does, that Evan ends up being a fraud. Like they have a moment yeah. where she's like, you let everyone down. But then that was kind of it. You know, I, I latched onto the character of Alana as well, and I'm glad you brought her up because, and one, this is played by a 22-year-old actress, and I don't want to hammer this drum any further, but I bought her more credibly as a teenager than I did some of the other characters here. But the idea that she would she would take this this person who she didn't know and turn his suicide into some sort of personal tragedy for herself feels completely on point for a teenager. Teenagers are... They are naive, they are sentimental, and they are self-aggrandizing. And, you know, whenever whenever some major tragedy happens in the world, for a young person, that might be their first brush with mortality in their life. And it feels like a big deal to them. And I don't want to step on those feelings. I don't. I, I find those feelings somewhat endearing. Like, death hurts for people who've never experienced it before. And it hurts for people who get older as well, but I think it hurts in less showy ways. It hurts in, in ways that are not about letting other people see you grieve. And, you know, it's the sort of thing that you you probably develop a sense of as you get older, and I'm, and I'm sure I'm not done doing that. So to watch this character basically have a coming-of-age moment where she says, wow, there are, there are other kids like me who are going through serious mental health struggles, and, you know, this kid that I barely knew, if only somebody had helped him, well, maybe I should help somebody else— it does not feel like such a bad thing for her to be doing. It's it's ridiculous, and it's not going to succeed, and it and the involvement of the orchard is just bizarre. But at least she has the right intentions. I, I at least buy that her that she's coming from a good place there, and and we can go with that. We can go from there. And if Evan Hansen were also a naive child, as depicted in the film, I probably could have latched onto that a little bit more. Well, her, her character is someone who attaches herself to a lot of different activism projects. They debut her character, or her character's introduced, I should say, 
uh, by having her talk about like, you know, deforestation is bad. And I'm like, yeah. yes, it's, it's, it's awful. And that's kind of all she says. And then the principal comes up and goes, yep, that was a very inspirational speech. Go Bobcats. And I was like, yep, that is, uh, that, that, is, that rings true. Yeah. And I can simultaneously believe that this girl will get bored of this and move on. But I can also believe that the fact that she's exhibiting these tendencies at this age could bode, bode well for her doing something serious and long-term in the future. You know, she's trying out different identities. She's trying out different forms of activism. And not everybody who does that ends up going on to fulfill those ideals in life, but some of them do. And I'm sure they start off just like this, kind of dabbling in one thing or another yeah. until they find the thing they really care about. Or, or find the resources to make a difference. Exactly, yeah. That's about all I've got, Daniel. I think this film was, like, I I have often said, I love the musical genre. I absolutely love it. And there are storytelling and production design and uh, narrative conceits that I will accept from the musical genre that I will not accept from any other. City of Stars is your favorite song ever made. It's not. That is another Pasek and Paul uh, song. But I will give you an example, though. The Greatest Showman, which is the film that Pasek and Paul did all of the music for, is a deeply flawed and problematic film about P.T. Barnum, you know, a guy who, well, he's a flawed in real and life, person. He, he was an abuser of animals, he was an exploiter of people with disabilities, you know, he... He was a man of his time. The movie kind of portrays him as all of that, but also as kind of this heroic and empowering figure, and it throws in this completely out-of-nowhere love story that was, you know, completely made up with Zac Efron and Zendaya. But again, all of that worked for two reasons. One, the soundtrack is uniformly full of just absolute bangers. You know, they're, they're just, I, I've listened to the soundtrack over and over and over again. So many fantastic songs. And also, they are all staged absolutely beautifully. They are over-the-top, ridiculous musical numbers where everybody is singing and dancing and there is crazy circus shit happening everywhere. And you really do believe this is the greatest show on Earth because that's what the movie has to sell to make the whole thing work. This, they didn't just sabotage the character of Evan Hansen. They also shot all of the musical numbers right up in his face and they made it very clear that nobody else in the movie was involved in them. Yeah, that was my question. Like, was he singing, actually? Or that was just the extended musical number? Yeah, and, and you cannot... You, you, you know, the, the image of an old man yelling at children in a hallway <laughs> is hard to he's shake He's not that old. He's younger than we are. He is, but everything they did to make him look younger, you know, whether he's hobbling around like Nosferatu with his shoulders slumped over... He or is wearing Benjamin a Button, curly... sir. Yeah, it, it, it's, it didn't work, and it made him look older than he does in real life. So I... This movie shot itself in both feet more than once, and I cannot imagine ever wanting to watch it again. Daniel, any final thoughts about the film? Speaking of not wanting to watch it again, I think this movie is about 45 minutes too long for the content involved. Uh, I made a comment to you while watching it. Oh my God, how is there still 45 minutes left in this film? <laughs> uh, they do a whole like redemptive arc. Yeah, do we, do we want to... Do we want to talk about this in spoilers here? Because uh, this is spoiled the whole movie. That's fair. This is a difference from the stage musical. So I so I will say we're not going to do a full on spoiler section for this, but let's go ahead and talk about the ending. If you don't want to hear how how the movie differs from the musical, uh, tune out now. They have Evan Hansen go back and like actually do the right thing. Where so after everything falls apart and he's you know, back to square one and everyone in school avoids them. To be clear, everybody, everything falls apart is the Murphys find out the truth. Correct. And that, that much was in the play. 
But the Murphys agreed to keep his secret in both the play and the and the musical because they thought it, it would, that it would damage their son's memory even further to have the truth Correct. out there. And what happens in the movie is that people start abusing the Murphy family online because they're like, oh, you know, they this rich family must have mistreated this kid and driven him to suicide. So he ends up confessing publicly, and that does not happen on Instagram in the, Live. Yeah, that that does not happen in the in the play, and it's presented somewhat heroically because he's doing it to spare the Murphy family this this onslaught of well, abuse. And, I mean, as as heroic as an Instagram apology is, he he spent ten seconds doing it. Yeah, I mean, and also he's he's heroically fending off a, a negative consequence that he was the direct cause of. Right. So, uh, granted, Alana did her part to help out. You know, I, I believe he fucked around and found out. Exactly. But then he goes back and he investigates Connor Murphy. And he finds people who actually knew him, and he gets a video of Connor playing guitar uh, in a rehab clinic from one of Connor's friends, which is his family had made a comment that they saw a guitar, but he never played for him, and he refused. So he gets the video, and he sends it to them as his way of saying, you know, his apology. And I, at that point, was like, why is this movie still going? It was like Lord of the Rings. I was like, why? The movie's over. He fucked around. He found out. That's the movie. I can imagine the Murphy family getting another message and they're like, why is this kid contacting us again? Why can't he leave us alone? We offered him a scholarship and now we're going to have to put out a contract to kill him. Yeah, we, we got that moment of the Murphys offering to pay for college, and that led to another very interesting moment between Evan Hansen and, and Heidi um, about whether she can afford to, to pay for his college or not, and, and basically whether she whether she's embarrassed at, at his attempt to get charity from this other family. And he's a dick to her, a total dick, and I'm like, this this is what I want to see. I, wa- I want to see them work out their relationship, which clearly has a lot of structural issues. Yeah. And then they don't do anything. And I'm like, why? Why is this movie still going, but not going in a direction that makes sense to me? Yeah. I'm with you. Uh, you know, I was I was ready for this movie to be over fully 35 minutes before it ended. So, well, with that, uh, we're approaching 35 minutes ourselves. Oh, so my let's, God. Uh, let's spare ourselves any further thought on this film. Uh, avoid Dear Evan Hansen. Do not see the movie. And this is an act of... of Honestly, sincere egotism, because I I don't doubt that Ben Platt feels that this movie has an important message to put out in the world, so important that he was so precious with it that he had to put himself in it again. He and his executive producer father who helped make this movie happen. So that is a profound misfire and and an artistic mistake on his part. He should not have done this. Tune in for Evan Hansen, too. Yeah, you've got to... I'm not going to say that you have to always cast teenagers as teenagers, but if this is the story you want to tell, you really needed a teenager for this part. So, yeah, that's all I've got. Let's wrap it up. All right. Well, if you have any feedback on our discussion of Dear Evan Hansen, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com. And now on to our review of Malignant. I'm having visions. Dr. Florence Weaver was found brutally murdered in her home this morning. Did you know her? No, but I saw her die. I'm seeing things. I'm seeing murders as they're happening. Hello? 
He says his name is Gabriel. I think he's someone from my past. Whatever happened to you before you joined our family hurt you in a way that I can't even imagine. That was from the trailer of Malignant, the new film on HBO Max from director James Wan, screenplay written by Akila Cooper, with a story by James Wan, Ingrid Bisou, and Akila Cooper. This film stars Annabelle Wallace, Maddie Hassan, George Young, and Nicole Brianna White. This film takes place in Seattle, in quotation marks, uh, and it features a a horror premise straight off the uh, the the horror like Friday night video selections uh, in the 1990s. Like this is this is like a worn out VHS that you would take home and watch on a Friday night, but made with a very uh, modern flair. Like there there are definitely things that are depicted in this film that they would have had a hard time depicting prior to this year, or would have involved some some very complex creature effects here, but. Uh, the premise here, it starts off at a creepy hospital in 1993. We see that there is some sort of creature under containment. We don't get the best look at it, whatever it is. And it is injuring several people. It's throwing people across the room. And finally, this uh, this doctor, uh, this doctor Florence Weaver, played by Jacqueline McKenzie, says that it's time to cut the cancer out. And then, title, malignant. And then back to the present day. And in the present day, there's a woman, Maddie, who is uh, who is pregnant, and uh, she is with a uh, an abusive a-hole of a husband, and there is some sort of... She's starting to see a vision of a killer that is stalking various people and killing them, and she slowly comes to believe that these killings are happening for real. That is basically the premise of the film. It goes in a few directions beyond that. Uh, this film is absolutely grotesque. It is super violent and gory, and it is most definitely not for everyone, but... Uh, Daniel, I have to say, I absolutely loved this film. <laughs> it took me a little while to get into the tone of it, but it feels like a film that is giddily ridiculous. Uh, it sets up a uh, a sort of magical realist uh, kind of villain, uh, re- relying on just the barest pretense of bio- of biological justification for what's going on. But basically, this could just as readily be supernatural horror. It doesn't really matter. The point is, there is a creature, and it is killing people, and we need to try and track it down and fight it. And when it comes down to a monster movie like this, all that really matters is, is the monster compelling, and are the people chasing it worthy adversaries? And by and large, I think this movie succeeded at delivering both on both. So, Daniel, I'll put it to you. Uh, what did you think of this absolutely disgusting film? Remember when I said during that Dear Evan Hansen review? Where I said mark this day in the calendar because we agree on a film. Uh-huh. Yeah. Cherish those memories, Glenn. This movie was terrible. It was not scary at all. It was not the it was it was violent, but it was dumb violence. I cannot begin to tell you how utterly ridiculous and stupid this monster was. I there's a character named Winnie in the film who is, I believe, one of the writers. Ingrid Bisou plays the character of Winnie. I believe she's is Winnie the CSI tech. That is actually James Wan's wife and the co and one of the story writers on the film. So, so there's a character named Winnie who apparently has a love interest with the chief detective. It goes nowhere. There's no reason for her character to be in there other than that she co-wrote it. Well. I don't know that I would call her a love interest. She does flirt with uh, Kakoa Shaw in like, one scene, but that's what well, it doesn't need to go anywhere. It wasn't a love story. It was just a character flirting because flirting is fun sometimes. Nothing happens, not needed. 
The monster has inconsistent powers that are never explained. I, it was terrible. It, I mean, like, there was a, like, I, I described this to a friend of the podcast. I said this movie is 90% stupid and just incredibly bad and 10% wacky fun. Okay, so Daniel, I'm, I've got I'm gonna have some bones to pick here with the uh, with the, the nature of the monster, but we, we're gonna have to wait until we get into spoilers here before we reveal what the monster is. So the scariest part of this film was the first ten minutes about a uh, a violent asshole of a husband or fiance or boyfriend a uh, miscarriage. That was the only part that I thought was actually like captivating. Well, yeah. Th- so this is her uh, her husband, or boy- I-, I believe it is supposed to be her husband, because they do mention that she had a shitty marriage at one point. Uh, this is Derek, played by Jake Abel. He's a real Derek. He's shoving her around, probably not for the first time, and uh, and and we learn that she has had multiple previous miscarriages, and that this is you know her third or fourth pregnancy, and she's not successfully uh, carried one to term at this point, and obviously. That is something that clearly weighs on this person, you know. She and she flat out says at uh, at one point here that she wanted to have a baby of her own because she wanted to have a blood connection with another human being. And and I absolutely understand somebody having that desire. It's not the same thing as, you know, she's adopted. Um she and also she, she's not just adopted. She doesn't remember anything prior to the age of 7. And so her past is a bit of a mystery. One interesting note here is that her sister, Sydney, is apparently finding out that she's adopted for the first time in this film, which is a potential conflict that gets introduced in this film that never pays off at all. Uh, we never see Sydney confronting her birth mother and, and her sister's adoptive mother about this this grand family secret and why it waited until they were both adults for one of them to, uh, to speak about it. You know, it, it was this area of conflict that was broached, but then never treated in any realistic way. So I was definitely cognizant of this movie not taking its emotional stakes all that seriously. And I was aware of, you know, making a woman fear a miscarriage as being a defining characteristic of that character is a potentially dubious area of storytelling. It's a potentially shallow take on this character. But I think what made it work was, first of all, Annabelle Wallace, uh, I think, does a very good job with this character. And I can also pretty cleanly tell what her arc was that, and obviously we'll have to wait until we get into spoilers here to, uh, uh, to talk about that for sure. But, um, but the, I, I definitely believed that she came from, she, she sort of had a, had one mindset on this at the beginning of the film and that mindset evolved over the course of the film. So there is at least an emotional arc going on here, even as there is also a physical and psychological arc going on here. Weird. I can't really talk any more specifically about this, and I think we need to go ahead and jump into spoilers here so we can talk about the nature of the monster. But I'm curious, did any of these uh, character beats or narrative beats work for you, even in those areas where you might have found them lacking? No, I mean, the dialogue is pretty atrocious throughout the film. And the the only part I liked was the first few minutes when it was like dealing with an abusive husband and a miscarriage. Uh, you know, spoilers, miscarriage is so, sort of triggering for me. Uh, so that made me uncomfortable and, and squirmy in my in my seat. But everything else I just thought was stupid. You know, it's it's the sort of thing that's upsetting to a lot of people. In fact, it's a, it's upsetting enough that I plan on putting a content warning on this episode. Explain to me, Glenn, how you could base a movie in Seattle and not get any of the streaks right. Is Google does Google not exist? Could you not just simply bring up a map and say, let's base this location? On Cherry Avenue. That's an avenue that exists. First of all, it's Cherry Street, not Cherry Avenue. Get your I would have been right. okay second, with Cherry Avenue. At but least second, it was close. Uh, 
at least when they when they are showcasing various what would be gigantic like two million dollar mansions in the city limits of Seattle. When we at one point refer to one of those locations, we hear a police call out to a location where a character has been murdered. And uh, this this monstrous two story, gigantic single family home is uh, is in Washington Park, which is a real neighborhood of Seattle. It's down by Madrona and it's where a lot of rich people live. So they at least got that detail right. Um, I also appreciated there's a lengthy drone shot or establishing shot. I don't know if this was just B-roll that they shot with a drone or, or you know, licensed from somewhere, but they're flying out over Lake Washington above the I-90 bridge. They fly over the Mount Baker Tunnel, and then uh, it actually fades into a different shot where they're flying over Georgetown, and then it fades into yet another shot where they're flying across Elliott Bay over the Seattle skyline. So it's a series of establishing shots of the Seattle skyline from, like, three different angles. But what they have added in there is just an apocalyptic rainstorm. Like, rain like we never get here. Rain like on, uh, what's that show, The Killing, that takes place here, but is shot in Vancouver, just like everything is. Um, that's that's one thing that they always get wrong when they're film, when they're having something take place in Seattle. But I love it. When it, you know, we only get rain like that once, maybe twice a year. It is extremely, it's a rare event. It's a drizzle. We get an ongoing drizzle for like a week, weeks at a time. Actually, but if, if if somebody wants to shoot a movie in Seattle and uh, and bring the apocalyptic rainstorm to it, I, I honestly, I enjoy it. It's a hoot. But I can understand finding that very stupid on, on your part. Okay, so they're in Capitol Hill, and they're showing me four lanes of traffic. Yep, not a lot of places where that's true. Where is there four <laughs> lanes of traffic in Capitol Hill? Did they not even visit Seattle? Yeah, those, these feel like nitpicks to me, Daniel. The well, we can't get into spoilers. Well, I'll, I'll let you know how I feel about the monster in, in a few seconds. But that's fair. I, I I will grant this did not feel like Seattle. It felt like quote unquote Seattle. The the sort of I guess Pioneer Square aesthetic that they're going for with the with both the police station and also the Seattle Underground tour that we see little snippets of. I've gone on the actual Seattle Underground tour. They clearly recreated some elements of it in a soundstage. This was not the real Seattle Underground tour, right. but I at least believe that they sent some crew members to Seattle to research that and get a, you know, take some photos so that they could uh, faithfully recreate those on a soundstage. Like the, all the Seattle underground stuff, it basically just looks like a, looks like a bunch of musty basements. The, the idea of weird, weird old artifacts or like, hor- like horse-drawn carriages being in them is a bit odd. Like I've seen old mining equipment and shit in there from like the Klondike gold rush era. Right. Well, this is a mine. I mean, this is a launching pack for, for a mining expedition. Yeah. This is a logging town. But none of that bothered me because we see an extended chase scene through there. We see uh, we see Seattle Police Detective Kakoa Shaw firing bullets after the person he's oh chasing after, and I'm like, I'm like, that's very on brand for Seattle PD. So well done there. Yeah, but like Seattle PD is good at killing things. That's true. Yeah, some of those bullets would have landed for sure. They made Seattle PD look pretty inept in this film, and I'm like, ah, they're they're pretty good at killing. Yeah. Uh, if the final set piece doesn't work for you, I, I will grant this movie doesn't have a lot to offer, but we're gonna have to we're gonna have to go ahead and get into spoilers to talk about that. So Daniel, shall we get into it? I think we have to. All right. Well, if uh if you're looking for a horror movie that is a hoot and a half, uh it's not a hoot, at, le- at least half of us agree with you. So on average it'll be 0.75 hoots, and I hope you enjoy it. And from here on out, spoilers for malignant. I will, uh, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and pat myself on the back here. You often do. Onto my parasitic twin. I, I totally called this ending. 
that she that the the killer was in fact inside her the whole time. There well, was no was separate obvious. body. There was no separate entity. Otherwise, how how would she have been able to see the killings? Well, I mean, this is basically I, I described the premise of this movie to my wife, and she's like, "So Harry Potter, right?" And I at multiple places in my notes, I have you know, this is Voldemort and Harry Potter, and that aspect of this film, obviously. The idea of the killer and the and the hero being connected and swapping visions in a supernatural way did not originate with Harry Potter. That's not that's not J.K. Rowling's original creation. I believe J.K. Rowling made that up, and you need to acknowledge her. But it, it, it's almost it's honestly comical how similar the ways in which the character of Maddie and the the killer Gabriel, her her brother, as it turns out, her parasitic twin brother, are to. Harry Potter and Voldemort. I will say the the visual that we see for this of all of a sudden the area around her transforms and she's a witness to a murder, but she's not really there in the room where the killing is taking place. She's just watching it happen. I, I found th- I found that to be a fairly compelling visual, and I also found it to be a fairly compelling mystery because for a while I believed, okay, she's she's just seeing visions of this. But then at a certain point, it became clear to me that what I was looking at whenever we like they they went out of their way not to show the monster in in all that much detail. But it was really clear that it was A, a woman's body, and B, it was a woman walking backwards. And that was enough to, like, they, if they were looking to obfuscate that for longer, they did not do a good job of doing that. But that said, uh, I still found the monster to be pretty cool. Um, it's got this fucked up face coming out of the back of her skull. And the basic idea is that they're fighting for control of her mind and body. The attempt to excise the Gabriel creature from her back failed because it, it, it got rid of Gabriel's body parts, but it still it still left a part of him in her brain. Yes, the world renowned doctor said, Well we cut out what we can, let's just push the rest of this back in. Well and it worked for a while. Uh but uh, and it worked until uh until Gabriel was revived with an act of violence with uh, with uh, her asshole husband Derek shoving her head against the wall that apparently woke up the demon and uh, so all of a sudden he first of the very first thing the demon does Gabriel is uh, kill her husband uh, while she's asleep upstairs and kill him with such superhuman strength and brutality that they never consider that it could be her they, they do they do treat her as a suspect um, but they don't they don't think that it's her initially because explain how could she do me. this explain to me how a teratoma suddenly grants superpowers the movie never even made up a pseudo-scientific like, you know, oh, Gabriel is able to access the pterodactyl gland and, you know, bring it deep into her brain. And that's why she has parkour powers. Now, first of all, I think they did give a very quick and silly explanation of basically he's, you know, you said her pterodactyl gland, is that what you said? Ter- pterodactyl gland, which grants, you know, parkour powers. I just assumed it was adrenaline, basically. You know, no, people no, people has, can lift a car when their loved one is trapped underneath it. You okay, know, it's, it's, she has super strength, super speed, and inhuman combat abilities as well. Yeah, it doesn't make a goddamn bit of sense. Like, if, if I, I will grant the idea that she's impervious to bullets does not make any sense at all. It seems like they ought to be able to take her down with some gunshots. But uh, it would make sense if this Gabriel could take over her her body. And she was able to do normal physical violence, but she just doesn't remember it. I, I hear you on this, but this is not an objection that I had watching the film, because the minute we were talking about a parasitic twin pulling itself out of the back of her skull, putting her into mental jail, and and perpetrating crimes with her body walking backwards, it's such a ridiculous thing that I was I, I, I was basically like, I either need to be completely on board with this and just accept that these are the powers this creature has, 
or I can or I can pick it apart, which is an inclination that I legitimately have. So I'm not criticizing you for wanting a rational explanation. It for doesn't this. even have to be rational. Just give me an explanation. She straight up calls her brother the devil at one point. I mean, are you are you able to accept this is literally the devil? You know, her, all, her, all, her all the doctor had to say was, "Holy shit, we don't know what this is, but it's infernal." And right. I would be like, all right, it's a demon. Cool. Let's just, I mean, let's the fact that this. it's able to put her in brain jail and take over her body, to me, implies that it is supernatural. Just, that's make, what up I took a, just make up something. Do you not think that it's more scary if it's never explained? No, because it's dumb. So if you're going to come up with something dumb, just give me some sort of half-assed rationale so I can like, buy into it. When I watch pro wrestling and they bounce off the ropes, I know the ropes aren't bouncy, but they tell me it's momentum that drives them, you know, back and forth. Okay, I can buy that. All I'm asking for is for the the science people who have these volumes of paper documents to say, yeah, this thing is something supernatural. It probably comes from some, you know, curse or whatever. Just give me something so I can buy it. Let me tell you something that this movie really reminded me of, both in terms of its aesthetic and its creature design, was John Carpenter's The Thing. Is that a film you've seen? Yeah, I watched it with you. Okay, yeah, I figured we'd, I thought we'd watch that one back in our roommate days. But yeah, fantastic film, uh, you know, classic creature design. It's But basically, the, the, all of the different variations and iterations of this creature that is taking over different human beings over the uh, over this Arctic base and killing them one by one, they're all ridiculous and they're all contradictory and they're all basically impervious to, to conventional weapons except for the flamethrower that Kurt Russell busts out. And at no point in that movie, at least did I feel inclined to ask, how does it have all these different abilities? Well, because it was clearly single... an alien entity, so I could buy Exactly. That. The catch-all there is that it's alien, quote-unquote, and that is enough. It's from another place. It has abilities we don't understand. But a teratoma is a real thing. Well, sure, a teratoma is a real thing, but, you know, so is, uh, so, you know, there are real parasitic life forms that can manipulate the behavior of living things right here on Earth. It was enough of an explanation for me to say, okay, she had this twin brother, it didn't fully develop, it was the product of a crime, we learned that her that her 15-year-old mother was was raped, um, and and also there is this supernatural element to it. If only because she, as a child, believed that her brother was the devil, literally. And that could have just been her religious upbringing. It could have just been what her mother told her. But it doesn't matter. It's what she believed. And what we see is this thing exhibiting abilities that no human being could exhibit and also surviving in a way that no human being could survive. So when I when I see this Voldemort creature sticking out of the back of her head, I'm not questioning its abilities. I'm just thinking, wow, that's fucked up. Let's see what it does now. Let's watch it kill all those people. But its abilities are inconsistent. It can't be a single detective because he has a name in front of his character, but it can mow down like 50 you know, Seattle PD, barely breaking a sweat, which I know Seattle PD can take down a single entity pretty easily. They can stop right. protests. All you gotta do is stick an umbrella in their face, and they'll shoot you. So, yeah. unless you're a right wing militia member with a with an automatic rifle, in which case they'll ignore you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, cool. no, I get but, it. I hear you on that, Daniel. There is definitely an element of, of a character shield going on here with uh, with Detective Shaw, as well as with uh, with Sydney Lake with the sister. Now that said, I think that we can somewhat explain the character shield on the basis that Maddie and Gabriel are battling for control of her mind and body. And what we see in that scene where, where detective Shaw is in the room and the creature Gabriel is up on the ceiling. We see a vision of Maddie in the room uh, trying to scream at, at detective Shaw, watch out. It's still in here. Watch out behind you. And I think that there is a reasonable interpretation there to say, 
she was fighting with Gabriel in that moment. And we and that and in that sense, we don't just see the ending come out of nowhere. We don't just see the uh we, we don't just see the ending of her finally defeating and taking over her own brain from Gabriel come out of nowhere. It is an extension of abilities that we have seen her demonstrate throughout the movie. She does have the ability to constrain Gabriel's actions. She just doesn't realize it until that final moment. So I may be giving the movie too much credit here, but I, I don't I don't think it's too much credit because I don't she, think it's just a character shield here. I think it was I think it was a moment of hesitation she managed to provoke. That was enough for Gabriel. It was not for, it was it wasn't presented that way it was just okay, presented that detective shaw was holding his own i mean I'll, I'll give i'll give that to you and if you want to call a character shield a narrative weakness that's fine it's just it's one that's so common it doesn't even bother me all that much it only bothered me because this this uh you know gabriel kills like 50 spd officers but you can't take like a a guy who's like 130 pounds soaking wet like i i did like that uh winnie the uh, csi tech was uh and also co-writer of the film or story credit on the film was uh one of the only survivors of the police station massacre and she was like hiding in plain sight yeah and i'm like why is this character this character isn't doing anything why do we care? Well, you know, we've talked enough about nepotism with dear Evan Hansen. I don't think we need to get into... Uh, Can you think Evan Hansen could have taken out Gabriel? Uh, yeah, with, you know, the, just the right song, I guess. Right song can disarm anyone. So, I understand that you were not into the stakes or the, the nature of the creature, but did you? what did you think of the action of that of that scene at the police station? It was just grotesque. Like, I don't... Like, the combat made no sense. It was, just, it was the typical, like, we're all just gonna rush up one-on-one... <laughs> and get taken out like the police would have retreated they would have fired like all of their military grade weapons gabriel would have blown up into a you know a bloody mist well this is also a moment where uh so one of the other influences that's clearly at work here is resident evil we've got joseph bashara's score here which feels very overpowering and bombastic in the same way as what marco beltrami and marilyn manson were doing on resident evil of course, this movie was also constantly using the song Where Is My Mind by the Pixies uh, in, in its soundtrack, which is a very strange choice, um, just instrumentally uh, over over the course of this. But I, I kind of I liked the over the top like I, I don't even know what to call this kind of a death metal aesthetic going on with the soundtrack here when Gabriel just rampages through the police station and there's ridiculous CGI one shot violence going on. It took me right back to seeing Resident Evil in theaters again. It was a classic horror action scene for the ages. I was totally on board for it. Well, I'm glad you liked it because I was passively watching it waiting for the movie to end. That's fair. I mean, that's how I felt for the last 45 minutes of uh, Dear Evan Hansen. So I, 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 well, I was there that. with you at that point. <laughs> So what did you think of the final scene in the hospital room? Because that's where it all comes together. So Detective Shaw, who's the one unwounded member of SPD, knows that that's where the creature is heading next um, to kill his birth mother. And he and he also knows that the sister's in danger. So he's going there to try and, and intervene there. And that's where the big showdown happens and the big takeover happens. So what did you think of how that scene played out? I guess the only part that I liked was that the, the revelation that uh, Gabriel was uh, powering up through consuming her children, which is causing the miscarriages, that revelation caused her to actually be able to fight back and imprison Gabriel in her mind somehow. Which was not just a play that Sydney was making. It was a conclusion that she came to based on reading the files that she discovered at the hospital. So Sydney gets this entire plot line where she goes out to the hospital, goes in, breaks into the records room. A ridiculously silly gothic hospital that would never be built in this area. Man, if that place existed, it looks like Notre Dame Cathedral by the sea. I would go visit that and climb up the outside of it. It'd be fantastic. I like that Sydney's like, I can't believe this was here. I'm like, everyone in the city would know about this place. 
right? It would be the coolest hipster like wedding photo hangout in there. There would be a cafe in there, and we would all go to the cafe. It would be a great place. Yeah, Seattle really does have a creepy medical building overlooking the top of it. It was, they I do. believe, it was actually the, for a while it was the original headquarters of Amazon. Yes, but before it was. that, it was the pa- it was the Pac Med building. Yeah. Um, you can see it on the left hand side as you're coming into the city on on I ninety, and it is very creepy. But it's not as creepy as this building, which is wholly fictitious. Yeah, clearly fictitious. Yes. But we get this scene where Gabriel, first of all, uh, the the birth mother, Serena, uh, who was Jane Doe, she was the Seattle Underground uh, tour guide who gets kidnapped by Gabriel at one point uh, and then ends up in a coma. She wakes up and she apologizes to Gabriel and she says, hey, you you know, whatever you were, you were my son. I should have treated you like my son. I should have treated you better. I'm sorry. And Gabriel pauses for a moment and then proceeds to kill both of them. Kills Sydney, chucks a hospital bed at Sydney, shoots her in the head, and tells Serena, you know, I just wanted you to watch her die. Now you're going to know exactly what I am. And only then is it revealed that Mattias already put Gabriel in mental jail and that that was all a fantasy. I loved that reveal. I loved that that little reversal there. I was like, oh, holy shit, they killed the sister. I I thought that was going to stick. Like, they got me with that. I, I thought if the, even if there was any defeat happening there, I thought that Maddie was somehow going to have to live with the fact that she had her sister's blood on her hands and that she had failed to save everyone. I thought I thought that was where the movie was going to end. Okay, I mean that, that's a fair take. I I thought it was all an illusion, uh, so I thought it felt predictable to me. That, that's how it would end. You expected the switcheroo in the happy yes. ending, so you, yes, didn't, you didn't take anything in that scene seriously. That's fair. And, and I'm not, I'm not saying that to like pat myself on the back or anything. I'm just saying in the moment I was like, well, none of this is real. That's fair. And I've had that experience watching movies before. I'm just like, okay, skip past the bullshit. Let's see what really happened here. Right. Uh, I was so into what was happening in this scene that that legitimately did not occur yeah, to so me. Right. And it's, it's, it's always great when I can get swept up in a movie like that. It doesn't always happen, but sometimes it does. The only thing I liked was the character weapon. The character weapon? I thought oh, the character the, not, weapon the, was a the, nice touch. He, the, the surgery trophy that's like a golden dagger? Yeah, but he had to like weld into like a better dagger. But yeah, yeah, the, the thing was clearly a weapon of violence. <laughs> yep, yep. And we see it stab so many people in the face. It's amazing. So the character weapon was good. Uh, the whole like, I've been nesting in her house the whole time. I'm like, all right, we get it. You're in her head. Well, it's not just a character weapon. It's a whole character aesthetic. Like it's even got a jacket that it wears and sort of covers up the uh, covers up her face. Yeah. Um, Because obviously Gabriel knows that it's vulnerable. If anybody comes after Maddie because they see Maddie's face, then, you know, Gabriel could be defeated that way. So I found that to be an interesting detail. And it, it made the fight so creepy. That when Gabriel's rampaging around, and of course the way they accomplished this was with, there's one performer in the Gabriel suit kind of doing all the stunts, and I assume there was, I I don't know, I don't know if it was a mix of of CGI or there was an actual Maddie mask on the back of that, that performer's head, but either way, the creature design of, of, you know, Annabelle Wallace's face on the backside of this thing, which is really the front side of Maddie's body, was so, so gross and so creepy, and like you could tell she was just in another place. Um, I, I loved that. Did you feel like this movie was scary? Because I, 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 I didn't feel like I don't think that the uh, James Wong understands like what horror is. Interesting. I didn't. I did not think this movie was all that scary. But the movies that I'm comparing it to, like Resident Evil and like The Thing, are not all that scary to me. They're they're over the top spectacle. They are about the gore, but they're also about the mystery, um, and they're about the fear of grotesque injury. 
And I think that that's an element of horror that can work. It's not just about scaring people or spooking people or even, you know, jump scares or jumps in the soundtrack or ghosts. This is a horror that exists for people who don't have to believe in the supernatural, even even if the supernatural is sort of required to buy into the powers that this thing has. Um, you don't have to believe in ghosts to be into this, uh, is, is my point. This is creature horror, which is a different species from supernatural horror. So that's kind of where I was at with it. But so, yeah, it, it was not scary, but that was not a deal breaker for me is kind of where I'm at. I guess I didn't buy the characters. Uh, I didn't like the dialogue. I thought the detective was silly. Uh, I I don't know. Like I, the the movie just didn't work for me. Like I I didn't, That's I didn't hate it in the sense that I didn't think it was like a bad effort. I thought it was clever as, as a concept. Like oh, take a medical thing and just like you know put steroids in it and inject yeah. it with you know nitro and like like see where this goes. Like it, it, it's a nice idea. I just felt like the execution was poor. There's another film that this somewhat reminds me of. It was a film by Lee Winnell that we reviewed here on the podcast. It was one of the last movies we saw in theaters uh, before the pandemic struck. And that was uh, The Invisible Man with uh, Elizabeth Moss and uh, and her uh, her abusive asshole ex, who's the, who's the invisible guy. I think this movie had a fair amount in common with that, just in terms of its vibe, in terms of its mystery, in terms of its uh, of, of kind of wrapping its uh, its creature in in very... In at least a in at least a surface level plausible real world scenario, like it doesn't have to be supernatural. I'm I'm curious because I remember you liked The Invisible Man, and I'm curious how you would compare those two films. Well, The Invisible Man, from thinking of the same film, it's a tech suit that makes him invisible. Yeah, it, it is. So that's at least like an, like a realm of possibility that I could buy, right? A teratoma that grants parkour powers. <laughs> it's not it's not something I can easily like say, oh that makes sense. Well okay, but the measuring stick that you're using is realism, essentially. I won't even say plausibility. The scariest okay. I don't think Chucky is scary. Because a doll possessed by Satan is not scary because you don't believe in Satan, right? Well also like you can just kick it. <laughs> like, like it's a doll and it comes at me with a knife I avoid the knife and I kick it I boot it like a football and then I dis- and dismember it like I don't I don't understand why this is scary well Chucky and all of his acolytes Freddy Krueger Jason Voorhees they're also very funny horror films like there's there's a certain inherent goofiness in those characters that I think is present here as well um, I, yeah I don't know I think that this entire genre of creature horror might just not be up your alley here I like horror that's like I guess rooted in something real. Like, okay, fair I'll, enough. I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a horror movie. It got silly, but I like the premise. When uh, those snowboarders, like skiers, got stuck in the chairlift. Oh, you're talking about the movie Frozen. That's taking it way back on the podcast. Yeah, like, too, like that six. is an interesting premise. Like, what if all of a sudden you're a hundred feet up or fifty feet up and you can't get down and it's snowing? Yeah, you're talking about highly realistic survival horror. No, yeah, I, like I. I, I even though that even though that movie did pull the old wolves as villains cliche, yeah, which I, I hate, but at least that well, I was like, I thought about that afterwards. I'm thinking about it now. I'm never going to think about malignant again. <laughs> yeah, I believe on the podcast at the time we called it the horror of the mundane, the idea of just an ordinary thing that you're doing suddenly going horribly wrong, and that's that's kind of in the vein of Final Destination. You're just walking along one day, but all of a sudden there's a design which will lead to your death, an elaborate series of events which will play out in a way that will kill you at a moment when you least expect it and i think those i think those have their place i just think they're of a different species from a movie like this and yeah it just sounds like this is not up your alley at all well which is fine I'd- it, okay it, it, this this with a few tweaks i could go back into this 
a scientific explanation as to how it has powers of any kind. It could be as loosey-goosey as possible. Okay, let's imagine a version of this where instead of it just being something that spontaneously occurred as a result of a normal human pregnancy, this was some sort of mysterious experiment being done by Dr. Weaver at the hospital. Which is what I thought they were going to roll with. Injecting it with, like, superhuman parkour hormones. We knew we couldn't remove the parasitic twin, so we decided to try and make him stronger so that he could survive yeah, on his what own. Like that be an evolution of humanity. Exactly, yeah, that... That could have been an interesting twist. I don't know, but I, but I, it's not necessary for me. But it's interesting to me that that would have made it work for. Me. I, I would at least like say, okay, this is still very silly, but at least I could buy into it. And so you could buy into it as long as it's as long as its origin story matches that of the Incredible Hulk. Exactly. I, I I'm a, I'm an Incredible Hulk fanatic. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, Daniel, um, it sounds like we just fundamentally disagree about this movie, and that is fine. Uh, any final thoughts? I think it's fine. It's been a while since I think we've both come at it from different angles, like a film. So the, it's, yeah. it's a little bit refreshing because I think we've had at least complimentary opinions on uh, the last few that we've reviewed. And am I correct that you were at least not bored watching this movie? Yeah, it was fine. Like, I, I, I wasn't bored, but I definitely wasn't into it. It's fair. But at least it wasn't like Evan Hansen length where I was like, oh my God, well, how is there 45 minutes left of this thing? I will say for however long Evan Hansen was and for however much it didn't work for me, the fact that it was a musical made it feel shorter to me. And that, that's one of those, you know, I can forgive more from the musical genre that, that I can't from others. The musical numbers really pick up the pace and you're just like, oh, it's time. It's time to watch people <laughs> sing again. And then you move on to the next thing. Like whether it works or not, the, the musical genre added, added to my tolerance of what was going on. No there. musical should be longer than an hour and a half if it's a film adaptation. I, coming back to Evan Hansen for a second, I would encourage everybody watching this to check out a Bobcat Goldthwaite film from 2009 called World's Greatest Dad. Uh, it features Robin Williams as a struggling writer whose son, played by Daryl Sabera, uh, ends up accidentally killing himself while doing autoerotic asphyxiation. Like we all have done. And his son, we see him for the first 20, 20 to 30 minutes of the film, is a huge asshole bully dipshit. And uh, and his his grieving father, in order to salvage his son's dignity, ends up fabricating a suicide note and staging it to look like a, a conventional teen suicide and ends up becoming somewhat famous as a result. It's It's got a very similar plot line to Dear Evan Hansen, but it's being perpetrated by a grown adult who is doing it for at least, I guess, somewhat sympathetic reasons, but they end up becoming self-aggrandizing because he uses it to boost his writing career as well. But that is a movie, and also that is a movie that was shot in Seattle for real. Uh, so they, you know, they got the they got the streets and the metro buses right. So, uh, so yeah, that. that's that's the uh, the the grand synergy between uh, Dear Evan Hansen and Malignant is check out World's Greatest Dad. It's a super fucked up movie, but if you've ever seen a Bobcat Goldthwait film, you know what to expect. If you film in Vancouver, just say the movie takes place in Vancouver. That's totally fine. with Man, I still remember Jackie Chan's Rumble in the Bronx, which takes place in the Bronx, New York, but it unmistakably has the mountains of Vancouver, BC <laughs> in the background of a bunch of shots. And uh, yeah, they, they really went for it there. All right. Well, Daniel, any final thoughts about either of these movies? I like it. They were very different from one another. One was about mental health and mental illness, and the other one was about an evil teratoma that could do parkour. 
It's about golden daggers stabbing people in the face. Yeah, lots of stabbings. Um, yeah. I will say, uh, Annabelle Wallace. I I have to offer some praise to this performance. This is an actor who the only prior experience I had with her was she played the second fiddle bullshit love interest of Tom Cruise in the 2017 uh, version of The Mummy, which was terrible and also like was not really an acting role at all. She was just uh, kind of yeah, there. I remember that. So I found her performance fantastic in this film. Um, this is a character who has to carry a lot of the weight of kind of the psychological horror that's going on behind the scenes here. And as I mentioned, I found her arc of wanting to find a blood connection with a a natural child of hers as a thing that the character wants and as a thing that the character continually finds eluding her, both because of the machinations of Gabriel, uh, well, entirely because of the machinations of Gabriel. And then she comes to realize, hey, I've had this this sister with me here the whole time. And, And the conclusion of that is her telling her sister, hey, Presumably before fleeing town, because she's wanted for like three dozen counts of murder at this point. Um, she tells her sister, hey, no matter what, you're my sister. You are my blood. And that's always going to be true. Um, that at least was an emotionally satisfying moment, because it's something that both actors really earned. And it, it was something that felt like a believable transformation from the beginning of the film. Not just the kind of transformation that requires peeling open the back of your skull. So that emotional beat thoroughly landed for me. And it was largely due to these two performances. So okay. uh, got to give him praise for yeah, that. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, so does Madison have to wear like a helmet the rest of her life? We saw her knit the uh, skull back together, so in addition to getting the mind powers, she also apparently has the body powers as well, so no. transforming back, uh, de-hulkifying herself. Is now can she control radio waves like uh, old Gabriel could? That's a very good question. We see her in a police interrogation room at one point, and then the police detective, uh, uh, Kakoa Shah's uh, phone rings and gets a phone call from Gabriel. Which apparently, and and Maddie is unaware that this is happening. So this is the this is her own brain initiating this phone call mm-hmm. without her knowledge. So uh, yeah, it was a ni- nice detail. Simultaneously, it exculpates her, but like it doesn't do her a lot of good because she goes into the jail, gets hassled by you know villains straight out of central casting. And, uh, <laughs> uh, but but my helmet comment is so Gabriel was triggered because of a head injury. So she oh, have to- I see what you're saying. To make sure that doesn't happen again, yeah. We do get that sort of X-Men conclusion moment where she's locking Magneto up in the cell, and he's like, you know that I will escape, and she's like, and I'll be waiting. Uh, (laughs) So no. If this movie drives enough HBO Max subscriptions, there will be a malignant too, so get excited, Daniel. Double tumor. I don't want it. (laughs) If there's one thing James Wan is known for, it's uh, spawning lengthy horror franchises. So I I would have been very surprised if there was not going to be another one. Um, he did the Insidious series as yeah. well. Malignant feels like another. It feels of a piece with that. Like, oh, it's a it's a memorable, disturbing word. Insidious, Insidious two, Malignant, Malignant three, the final chapter, etc. Get excited! And of course, he was also involved in the Saw series. So there you go. Ugh, Saw series is terrible. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our discussion of Malignant. If you have any feedback on our discussion, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com. Thank you for tuning in to filmwonk.net and have a good night. Who's your